But surely Adam cannot be excused. Her fault, though great, yet he was most to blame. And then to lay the fault on patience back, that we poor women must endure it all? We know right well he did discretion lack, being not persuaded thereunto at all. If Eve did err, it was for knowledge's sake, the fruit being fair persuaded him to fall. No subtle serpent's falsehood did betray him. If he would eat it, who had power to stay him? From Salve Deus Rex Judeorum by Amelia Lanier. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire. Come and join the conversation. Children gather around, if written works are your desire. Sit beside the flame of the cannon fire. Welcome to Cannon Fire, Episode 5, Part 1, Amelia Lanyer, Feminism Before Feminism Was Cool. In this episode, we talk about Amelia Lanyer, the time period she was in. Basically, just kind of go on a couple of feminism rants. Um... But before we get started, because we finally set up our Patreon and actually got our very first two patrons, we would like to thank, we'd like to give a shout out to our very first two patrons, uh, Susan and Bill. Thank you so much for donating to us. We We are so appreciative. Absolutely. We look forward to having more contact with you guys in the future. If you guys our listeners, the rest of y'all, if you guys want to donate to our Patreon, you can find us on Patreon just at Cannon Fire, I think. Cannon Fire is creating a podcast, which we are. Yep. It costs a lot of money, which we did not really understand. And there, yeah. <laughs> and there are several, uh, there are several tiers that you can join. So you can get a shout out, you can get bonus content. So it's pretty cool. And I think you guys will enjoy it. But for now, sit back and enjoy this episode of cannon fire so i i'm not familiar with amelia lanyer at all but that quote just gave me chills over my whole body i loved that i liked that a lot that's from the segment eve's apology yes okay which is mostly like that it's just basically her it's saying a non-apology. It's it's a non-apology. The it's non-apology. Oh, I'm so sorry that we messed up your paradise. I'm sure that you could have done like the way you reacted to it was totally chill and not at all horrible to all women everywhere. That's how I talk to my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> if I had siblings, it might be hard. <laughs> but alas, only child. So yeah, we're talking about Amelia Lanier. I only know her because of Caitlin, because because I'm a giant nerd who really, as much as I am down for taking down the canon, I am also in love with specifically Western European Renaissance and early Middle English lit. Which I fully support, but right. do not understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Amelia Lanier though isn't canon in the fact in the fact that we that only you guys know of her, because you guys are English majors. You guys like I never learned of her. Okay, so in yeah, college. So K- 
Kate is an English major, and that's the only reason Kate probably even knows of her besides the homeschooling, where you I, got to choose whatever the heck you wanted to read. I, I, I know about her because one of my favorite professors in college was also a giant fan of this era of literature, but he was also really good about including people that were otherwise overlooked in the eras that the canon kind of considers valuable. I actually took a class with him one semester, which was, I think it was called Beggars and Thieves, and it was about early Middle English uh, people who existed outside of the realm of what was acceptable. And, uh, Me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it existed outside of the realm of what was ex acceptable and how they still managed to do really impressive things and be considered. He was always really good about making sure that people like Mamelia Lanier were included in our curriculum, even when it was a, that specific class was a core class, so it was all very, it was a long span of time learned about in a short period. Okay, we will have him as Dr. Ally. Dr. Ally? Yes. Great. Um, Sorry. No <laughs> problem. I had to figure out who I know. It was watching, my advisor. I love him so much. Watching you guys... Uh, ra raise your hands like we're still in high school <laughs> just cracks me up well it's better than ringing a bell fair <laughs> so yes we're gonna call him professor ally professor ally was always incredible about including women and uh minorities and lgbtq individuals in our curriculum even when he was doing uh core competency classes where you had to learn a whole bunch of people across the span. I think this class was like 7,000 years because it started with Sappho and ended with Descartes. Um, ha! Ha ha ha! Nice! <laughs> uh, he so did that on purpose! <laughs> uh, it started with Sappho and ended with Descartes, and he... This is... That's how I learned about her. We actually... Um, at the when we were doing our research for this, Zoe talked in our group chat about how she couldn't find a book of Amelia Lanier anywhere, and I have actually never seen one. I imagine there are probably books of Salve Deus Rex Deorum, or she's in um, anthologies, potentially, like educational anthologies, but I read her on the Luminarium, which is a database of Old English texts. Salve Deus Rex Judeorum. Uh, was published in 1610, which kind of explains why we can't really find physical copies of it. There are apparently nine extant copies, five of which are complete or nearly so, but it really wasn't that published. But nonetheless, we are still going to talk about kind of our first author that doesn't really have a huge body of work. Mm -hmm. A lot of our other authors, they were prolific writers, and we're going to be paying attention to someone who wasn't given the opportunity to be that based on the society yeah and like joy harjo wasn't even a prolific writer she was like i i can't think of a word to describe hyper prolific yeah. yes she just over overdone but yes yeah so amelia lanyer lived during the time of shakespeare um if that kind of puts her <laughs> in a in a mindset and gives a picture to anyone listening. The um, only picture it gives me is neck ruffles. So what year? What, I actually, what years is that? She was born in 1569 and died in 1645. Those aren't real years. No, they aren't. 
Uh, she lived 76, <laughs> she, though. Yes, gracious. she lived for a very long time. Which uh, is very impressive during that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. She lived through the reigns of Elizabeth I, Charles I, and James I and VI, which... Which, is a really long time. Yeah, it is a long time. And our British listeners will probably <laughs> know more about that time period than anybody else. <laughs> because thanks, American standardized schooling. <laughs> By the way, the only reason we keep mentioning our British listeners is because our British listeners were two of our first listeners. So, <laughs> so and one of them was my partner. And the other one was his brother. So it's not like we just had randomly two British listeners. It's that we're... And that we're giving them... <laughs> it's that we're ridiculous. And we make, I guess, just my partner... Their partner, my friends. blood enemy. Okay. Um, spread the good word, you know. Um. I guess. Okay. So, I love Poetry Foundation, but as I was reading through their biography, they do have said a lot of good points. They did leave out some things. Uh, so, she was born, baptized Amelia Bassano in 1569. Baptism dates are more important back then than birth dates. They because... still are in the C of E. Well, it, back then it was, if you live to your baptism, you would live. Kind of. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's also not how it be. Also, but also, also, that makes sense. Also, you wouldn't get into heaven if you weren't baptized, even Ugh, though you had only been alive for like true. a week and a half. And you wouldn't really be named before your baptism. So, my boyfriend wouldn't be, uh, what, I mean, he's not getting into heaven anyway. We he doesn't him, have a soul. Yeah, he's never been baptized. I mean, my half of my family comes from the Southern Baptist tradition, which is Anabaptist, mm -hmm. which is you have to choose, choose. to be baptized. Yeah. Um, That's what I was. I'm not going to get into <laughs> religion, hopefully. <because laughs> and I'm because... Jewish, so I don't understand why these people keep pouring water on each other's heads. Because it feel good. That's fair. <laughs> Um, I'm not <laughs> baptized. There's a reason for that. Sorry, anyone who is a family member who's listening who is. <laughs> I just Ugh. won't be baptized. So, one of the things that Poetry Foundation... I have something funny to share. I'm so sorry. But the only reason that I got baptized, I was six years old. Um, so, like, yes, I believed that stuff because that's what mommy and daddy told me. So I believed it. But also, the only... <laughs> The only reason I got baptized is because I wanted to go swimming. <laughs> I wanted to swim in front of the whole church. So I did. So yeah, that's why I got baptized. I'm, I'm obsessed with water. It's fine. So that's why I got baptized. I just wanted to share that little tidbit with you before we before continue. Before we get back into the episode, um, the reason that... Uh, Kaylin and I's mentor, who uh, mentor faculty, who's now retired, became Catholic is because the Catholics would give her yes and no answers to mm, doctrine. That's funny. And she was like, she would just ask some questions as a very young child. Uh -huh. And her family was a very different religion, and so she went to that church and she did Catholic church for two years before deciding to fully convert. And it huh. was because the Catholics gave her straight answers. Straight answers. Yeah. And I think that's hilarious now, knowing who she is. Yeah. That that's oh, yeah. the reason, because she's all about questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so... That's, that's a, that, that sounds like a reason I would convert. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just being like, tell me what's up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very confused. Um, so what did the Poetry Foundation leave out? Uh, so speaking of being baptized, the Bassano family is uh, came to Britain from Venice. And in Venice, one of, one of the potential reasons they could have left Venice is because um, they were Christianized Jews. And the question of how Christianized, Jew, Christianized Jews actually were was something that the Spanish Inquisition and the Papal Inquisition were very concerned with. Nobody so expects it, though. Right. <laughs> so one of the I'm reasons, not sorry. One of the reasons they potentially moved to Britain was because they were worried about being uh, basically assaulted or uh, mm-hmm. condemned by the papacy. How old was she when that happened? Uh, I think this was right before she was born. Okay, so she wasn't even born in Italy. Mm -hmm. And it's actually interesting that they chose England to come to, because at that time, it was actually, uh, the Jews had been banned from England in 1290. And I don't remember when that ended, but that was still in effect. Jews, Jews just got a rough go of it. Oh, yeah. Honest, like, I can understand why all of this scripture from multiple religions, especially Abrahamic religions, say that Jews were God's chosen people. It's, like, because in the Bible, God, like, loves those who suffer, you know? And Jews suffer more than anybody else. <laughs> not, not to say that other people haven't suffered, but Jews have been, like, discriminated against since the beginning of, like, recorded history. And it just hasn't freaking stopped, man. It just doesn't quit. <laughs> Yeah, it's just everybody who wants to blame something, they blame it on this group of people. Yeah. And honestly, as someone who hasn't really been indoctrinated in any church life, who's more agnostic and more spiritual agnostic, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, it really doesn't. I'm friends with so many people from so many different facets of how they pray and their faith. And they're all valuable to me. And I see worth in every single community. And so it it just aggravates me that for millennia, for literal millennia, this one community has just been attacked and exiled and rebuked. Right. For 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 something they can't control. Right. And I can sort of, sort of relate to that, I guess, is what I would say. Because I am a, I am a, a person of mixed race and I am of uh, part of the LGBTQ plus community and, and neither one of those are things that I can control. And so I can sort of understand that. However, what I can control, I, well, I can't control my skin color, my skin color, my, I just happen to be white passing. Um, so that's luck on my side. But I also can control who knows whether I am a a member of the LGBTQ community or not. And Jewish people, more often than not, cannot control whether people know that they are Jewish. And there are just some very distinct features that people associate with Jewish people. And that can get someone killed. Still, it's 2019, and that can still get someone killed. It boggles my mind. Anyway, we went on a little mini rant there. That's a very mini rant. Um, But it's necessary, I think. Yeah. Because, like... We want to make sure that our listeners know... Anti-Semitism doesn't f***ing If if you're... (laughs) That's gonna be... (laughs) (laughs) 
If you're anti-Semitic, please don't listen to us. We don't want you here. Thanks. Don't um, send emails either because you're just going to get trolled. Yup. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> if y'all hadn't figured that out already. Anyway, so she was a... What was it? Christianized Jew? She was a Christianized Jew, which means that she was baptized in, the in I believe, the Catholic Church because her family was from Italy. Although, by the point that she was born, it may have been Church of England. So Christianized in that... Christianity was the religion, but Jew they were still in that Jewish. they were Jewish of Jewish uh, ancestry. Yes, because um, like we've said before, Judaism is multifaceted. Is both <laughs> religion and an ethnicity mm-hmm. and a culture. Yes, her entire family was artists. Her father was a musician. Her brothers were musicians. Dang. She actually hmm? I said, "Dang!" Uh, she actually was. She was she was actually potentially a favorite of Queen Elizabeth I because she was a musician as well. Gay? Question marks? <laughs> no. 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 Though she did very much enjoy being in Queen Elizabeth's company. Yes, that's true. I would also have enjoyed being in Queen Elizabeth's company. Um just saying. She she was a musician. She was a paid employee because she would have not been allowed to be in court otherwise because she was not important enough to what was considered important at that time. I always forget that at least good artists were more appreciated back then than they are now because someone being a courtier is is the equivalent of like a pop star nowadays. I always forget that that's a thing that existed because artists... Whenever you say artist, my brain goes, ah, struggling artist living in a studio apartment in Philadelphia, and not Miley Cyrus. Even though Miley Cyrus is just as much an artist as that student living in Philadelphia. I think that's interesting. That's something that I hadn't really thought about before. So she was a musician in Queen Elizabeth I's court, and she became the mistress of the Lord Chamberlain of the time, who was Henry Carey. And I love how that, like, I'm ace, but I love how that was something to be proud of at yes. one point, yeah. to be a mistress. was That was an accomplishment for her. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of silence happening right now. It's because I'm confused. What? Yeah. Like, if you were the mistress of a prominent uh, aristocrat or nobleman, then... It wasn't that you were being slut-shamed It's like at all. concubine. It's l- that kind of in thing. In a way. I mean, they weren't concubines because that's an outdated it's term even like then. It's more like a but celebrated it's... escort. Like, okay, you have so... connections. But it's not looking down on you for it. Because it was accepted by everybody? The wife included? Uh, the husband included. She was the mistress of Henry Carey while she was married to Alfonso Lanyard. What? Who yeah. was also a court musician. It was just... It was like a career move for What? Her. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool! That's so cool! That makes me kind of mad, because people still do that. To, like, women and men still do that today to get ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, make political movements like that. And now they're slut-shamed for it. Yeah. For why? For why? <laughs> it mm, it doesn't matter. a lot of confusion in yeah, this episode. Honestly, if you, if everybody, if everybody is consenting and happy about who they're having sex with, then why does it matter whether they are having sex monogamously or not? As long as there is communication happening, why are people still getting slut-shamed? Huh! 
Because she, it was public information that she was a court favor yeah. to the Lord Chamberlain. Like, it was expected of her that that would be a political move that she would take. And she actually, um, that would be mothered a one move. of his children. I would make that mm. move too. Dang. Two dudes. Two dudes. Plus Two d- possibly Elizabeth I. I'm going to keep that <laughs> as open. <laughs> that's, that's my headcanon of the actual human past. Um, it's fine. <laughs> that is fair. I mean, it would not be the weirdest headcanon that people have had about Elizabeth I. It's not the weirdest headcanon that I've had about Elizabeth I. Doctor Who has a lot of headcanons about Elizabeth I. Uh-huh. Hollywood has a lot of headcanons about Elizabeth I. We all love her. Hollywood doesn't sometimes, which frustrates <laughs> me. Um, but, yeah, so she had two different children by two different men. Okay, One so of half them siblings. died very young. Oh, sad. Yeah, the daughter died very It'd be young. like that. It does... Be that, be like that sometimes. It do be like that sometimes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like the only. Now. I'm the only person here not educated in the arts of English, <laughs> and so I have never cared about grammar, and everybody um, else does. I'm a creative writer, and I don't give a <laughs> about. <laughs> You're gonna have to use the bleep button. It's a fine. Lot. The the one thing that I did wanna bring attention to as a reason to applaud what she was able to do in the way that she was able to do it is that she wrote the first what we would consider today to be pastoral poems before Ben Jonson did by five years. What does that mean? Pastoral Pastoral poems. What is that? Pastoral poetry is a movement in poetry where there is a return to the countryside. There are all of these poets who are living in cities and being like, oh, civilization absolutely sucks. I wish we were more primitive. And so they would write poetry, long, long, long poems, just heralding how wonderful living in the country would be, which it would be if you had money, because then other people would work the land that you live on. There's there's a lot, not in Amelia Langer, but in... in, in uh, pastoralism, there's a lot of thinking that being a shepherd is just wandering around with sheep. I hate them so much. <laughs> like, that's so pretentious. It is. It yeah. is. Um, that one of the most, uh, it, it was later than this, but one of the most notice, notable literary movements that did that was Romanticism in the early 19th century uh-huh. with Byron and she- uh, Percy Shelley and them just thinking, and I don't pay attention to Percy Shelley because Mary Shelley is who I pray to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And we will talk about Mary Shelley. Even though she's been in the canon more ingrained, she's not really celebrated as as radical as she actually was. Mm-hmm. But that is a segue. And so we look to uh, Ben Johnson as one of the people who brought to the literary history pastoral poetry when actually a woman did it first. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. Um, As per usual. Yeah, and she, uh, Lanyard was inspired to write pastoral poetry because she got very close with the Countess of Cumberland, whose name was Margaret, and she was Lanyard's principal inspiration and patron. Like, she's the reason that we even have... Uh, Salve Deus Rex Judeorum in print, online, accessible, is because this patron said that, hey, you're onto something, please write. One of the reasons she had all these connections in the first place, the ability to go to court, 
the ability to make connections with the Duchess of, uh, the Countess of Cumberland was that when she was a young girl, her mother actually was able to send her to live in the household of the Dowager Countess of Kent, who, that house was actually Cookham, which is the poem that Zoe was referencing before. Um, a reflection on Cookham? Think. It's on Poetry Foundation. It's the only poem that you can read on Poetry Foundation. Yeah. But yeah, that was... She She spent a lot of time there. Mm-hmm. And while she loved courtly life, uh, which you could understand in the 15 and 1600s, that's probably the only place to be comfortable in England was in the court. So you can't hate on her for trying to have influence and live comfortably and aspiration and being um aspiring to uh better her life when we celebrate men for doing those exact same things i mean in terms of the specific uh artists that we celebrate from that time ben johnson shakespeare she has a very similar story because she came to court as a musician and then she got the patronage of the countess of cumberland for her writing she was she has almost the same story that these men that we celebrate so much do, but she's overlooked because she's overlooked now because there's not a lot of people aware of her because she does have this one poem with nine extant copies that has only recently received any kind of acknowledgement. But at the time she was overlooked because she was a woman and so nobody thought that recording her or keeping her work around and in good shape in terms of physically good shape like the nine the nine extant copies we have are not complete and that was the other thing that we don't another reason that we don't seem to actually give recognition to someone who started a history in literature a literary style in literature is because she didn't make it she wrote a lot of poetry in this one long poem she wrote to other women she showed the world that women can make community and that it's valuable to do so and yet her copies didn't sell and so that's shown as a failure on her part instead of a failure on society's part to make room for voices like her and I will always, always, always blame society over an individual because it takes a lot of courage for an individual to go against society. And her work has no influential predecessor, meaning that you can't look before her work and say this is who she is copying. Or So it's very similar to Akhmadova in that sense. And she actually, in Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, she talks very critically about religion and about what is written in the Bible. And so she claims biblical and historical authority because she is knowledgeable on biblical and historical authority in a time where women weren't really allowed to speak out because of... Who is Cromwell? What was his religion? What do you mean were? That's true. (laughs) But it was... uh, I think it was... Puritans had control. It was Protestant, uh, English Protestants. Protestants had, uh, control and they had societal norms put in place where women couldn't really talk about issues that weren't seen as pertaining to them. And so 
only in saying this book is about religion was she allowed to speak on societal issues because societal issues weren't seen as a woman's place but religion was mm. even though women were blamed because of eve kind of like how now today women's health care isn't seen as a woman's place yeah unless you bring religion into it mm-hmm. <laughs> so i do want to talk a little bit about selva selva deus rex judeorum just because of the way it's it's set up because it is in terms of it is a very early middle english style of writing you could tell that by the quote i read it was very much it 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 had a very specific form that it didn't deviate from it has uh a rhyme scheme and all of these very the the things that people associate with poetry like when when people read poetry people read poetry and says that's not a poem that doesn't even rhyme. It's kind of this kind of poetry that they're they're thinking of when they say that. So it's very much a, a kind of poetry that is very traditional. The form is very traditional. The What she's saying with the form is very much against tradition, in almost the same way that Phyllis Wheatley did, where she became very good at what was seen as good writing or articulate or worthwhile writing, but she... And she was she could be more straightforward about it than Phyllis Wheatley, partly partially because she was in a very good place in society, but she didn't just write pretty poetry and then have it be pretty. It it had this social component that she could put forward because of the way that she structured and wrote her poetry. Because in terms of what was considered to be good poetry at the time, this is kind of top tier. That being said. Zoe and I were talking about this podcast, it does not make it particularly accessible for a modern reader. It is very... If you don't like Shakespeare, if you don't like Chaucer, because you can't understand the themes that are underneath the style of writing, this will be a very challenging read for you. Mm -hmm. Because it's a challenging read for me. (laughs) Like, not correlation causation, but... I am a very modernistic reader and that I really like what's going on today and I really like what's happened contemporary-wise and, and looking at people who are not celebrated in the contemporary and talking about them. So like Joy Harjo, Audre Lorde, 1900s onward is like more my jam. And then I have uh, Middle English professional proficiency listed on my LinkedIn. So <laughs> that's the difference between where we are. That being said, G had a very strong reaction to the quote we read at the beginning. So if you're into fiery, accusatory social justice from the 17th century- Follow me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. From any time in history, which is part of why I like it, then she could be something that you would be really interested. But I- uh, Or if you're a theater person. Yeah, or if you're a theater (laughs) person. Oh, that's why. That explains why I had such a visceral (laughs) reaction to that. Uh, it's because I be gay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's an important thing, is Zoe said at the beginning as well, maybe before we started, but it is important, even if you don't particularly like or relate to an uh, artist, to understand their importance and whether or not they have a place to be learned about. Because I learned about her alongside Shakespeare, and she helped me understand Shakespeare. And um, we will get more into that in the next episode. We are going to talk about her relationship to Shakespeare later. We will get further into that later because there is some debate about whether or not that relationship existed, but I do want to talk about just 
The- Caitlin has some very strong feelings on whether or not that relationship existed. So prepare yourselves, clench your buttholes, <laughs> be ready. <laughs> Just saying. So going back to Salve Deus Rex Deorum, it is dedicated to five different women and to all virtuous women, which is something she probably would have had to say. Like, she couldn't just dedicate it to all women, because that would be too... That's another thing, um, just thinking about context. Somewhere around the Victorian era, there became this idea that women were these, like, pure, delicate creatures who you couldn't talk about sex or law or anything important around because they, could, they couldn't understand it with their sweet, childlike minds. I think that's butterflies. I, like, I'm pretty sure they think women are butterflies. Complete opposite in early modern England and in general in early modern Europe. Women were seductresses. They were full of sin. They could not help themselves. They were required to be controlled by men because if they couldn't, if they were not controlled by men, they would not be able to control themselves. Same. (laughs) Mood. I'm going to faint. (laughs) (laughs) Let me swoon in this dude's arms because... He has something that I want Mm -hmm. versus let me swoon in this guy's arms because I can't breathe and I I am too frail to handle walking outside. I'm both (laughs) because I have asthma and allergies and also I'm an evil seductress. Breaking stereotypes, Keep an eye out. (laughs) So at the time she was writing this, women actually were not considered to be physically, like, not in terms of physically on par with men as being not strong enough, as in they they weren't physically on par with men in that they weren't, they almost weren't considered the same species. Like, they were- My skin is made of paper and my bones are made of glass. Every morning I wake up and break both of my legs. (laughs) And then in the afternoon while eating lunch, I break my arms. Then I have to get up the next day and do it all over again. Tell me again that women aren't stronger than men. What? What was that? <laughs> so, um, there are, there was this belief that a woman was somewhere between a boy and a man in terms of mental What? In terms of mental development and in terms of ability to comprehend the world. That's where I'm at. Like, she was, a woman was more mature than a boy, but not as mature as a man in that she had a sexual appetite that a boy didn't have, but she could not control it in a way that a man could. And it's like, <laughs> what? Hang on, what? I just spit all over you. I'm sorry. What about girls? Like girls? I I don't even know. Girls like, were, were like they pets as lilies. Come on. Actually, they were no. Flowers. I think flowers. This is really creepy, but I think girls were just considered women. Um. Oh, that's true. Oh, you mean like today? Yeah. Especially with women of color. Yeah. Girls aren't given a childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So sh- this is the period in which Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, which we are going to keep tripping over that name because Latin is not a language that most people speak these days. I do. Yes. But- We're not going to talk about that. I have some bad memories from high school. <laughs> most so- of them involve Latin class. <laughs> so I never took a Latin class. Lucky you. Or a logic class. So yeah, we my downfalls. Tell. <laughs> we <can> tell. So... <laughs> so- she wrote this in this period where women were not considered to have the mental faculties to be adults, much less adults who could write political or social treatises about the treatment of other human beings. Same. 
I, feel I also like... do not have the mental capacity. <laughs> well, I think that's more a mental capacity to undo an entire society that's designed True. to oppress you. True. I would agree that's with you. That's more emotional that. labor than <laughs> yes. anything. But also, ugh. I don't want to. <laughs> but we have to. Uh, so one of the most important things about this work is it was being written in this at this point where a work like this could not be imagined by society. Which is, pro- which is one of the reasons it was rejected, is because it was too transgressive. It was too forward-thinking, yeah. because it was de- de- depicting, like, the speaker of Salve Deus Rex Judeorum is speaking to women, and she is a woman, which was... Women an- can't read. <laughs> Actually, in a lot of times, they couldn't. But one of the things that I love about Amelia Lanier, and one of the reasons that Professor Ally t- showed us to us, is that she was really proto-feminist. She wouldn't have called herself feminist because that word didn't exist yet, but she very much did not allow this extremely oppressive environment to crush her spirit or her ability to think and speak for herself. Zoe finally remembered herself. Yes. She um, also is one of the first, um, she wrote one of the first depictions of a society that didn't need men. And you don't see that until modernist works in America with um, the fictional futuristic societies that are now heralded as uh, um, populist modern feminist writings. Um, And I'm blanking on the title, but there's one in particular that I have in my head. Um, But, like, the speaker is a woman speaking to a community of women, disavowing Adam's actions and saying God and him don't aren't taking responsibility for protecting the paradise that they created. Her land. Her land, yes. I I absolutely think that this is um this has a direct connection across spans to her land. It's a very different style. It's a very different format. But it's a society that doesn't need men because men were essentially the people in Lanyard's perspective that ruined society and created the downfall. Um, who wrote that? Herland. Herland was written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who is most famous for her short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which was a work on... Why bas- hysteria isn't a thing. Why hysteria isn't a thing and why the treatment for hysteria was absolutely inhumane. Um... In the yellow wallpaper, a woman is basically isolated in a room for her quote-unquote health and goes insane because she uh, cannot leave her bed. She can't, yeah, she can't leave, she's not allowed to leave her bed. She's not allowed to mentally exercise herself at all. She's not allowed to write. Yeah. You know, it's a very similar society, technically, to what Lanyard lived in. (laughs) And it's also just bridging those connections. You can see with that connection how... Amelia Lander really was proto-feminist in a way. She just wasn't writing at a period where she would actually be listened to. And neither was Charlotte Perkins Gilman, but she definitely got more of an audience. Mm -hmm. I think with that, we're good to take a small break and come back and talk about whether or not she is the reason that Shakespeare respected women. (laughs) (laughs) That's all for part one of Amelia Lanyard. Cannonfire was created by Caitlin Porter, Zoe Bergmeier-Sweat, and G. Daly. 
Thank you to uh, Alan Hardison for our theme song and Brittany Barrel for our banner art. And if you want even more awesome content, you can donate as little as $2 to our Patreon. You'll get access to bonus content like monthly, possibly drunk rants, maybe, <laughs> and also life updates, um, as well as a shout out on the podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at cannonfirepod and Facebook and Instagram at cannonfirepodcast. You can also join our Facebook listener group, which I believe is called Cannonfire Podcast Listener Group or Cannonfire listener, listener Group. If you would like some other resources or our transcripts, because Zoe transcribes every episode, takes a long time to do that, by hand. So... If you want to view that or our sources, which Caitlin takes care of, you can go to our website, which is canonfirepodcast.com. You can also listen to all of the episodes there, and you can contact us. And remember, Western grammar is and will continue to be, for the foreseeable future, a white colonial construct, and unless we dismantle it. So keep being it, grammatically incorrect. It be like that. <laughs> Punch a grammar Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. And a real Nazi. All Bye. Nazis. Punch them. <laughs> Black guys all around. <laughs>